If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Alexandra Demiziani, or also known as Alex. She's the global managing partner at 21st Century Brand consultancy that was formed by her and two co-founders, Jonathan Mildenhall and Neil Barry. It was at Coca-Cola where Jonathan and Alex first met, and then later where they coincidentally both landed at Airbnb, where they continued their journey together and also met Neil Barry, who was at the agency at the time that worked with Airbnb. She also spent a number of years at Coca-Cola, also had an interesting career that we're going to go into a lot of detail She calls it a lattice career of zigzagging between marketing and advertising and other pursuits, things like uh, working in the developing world in Rwanda and Burundi. 
as well as writing a, a novel and getting her master's in investigative journalism. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Alex. Well, Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Well, I thought we'd get right out of the gate with my most important question. When you're not advising brands, are you a CIA agent? (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how many people suppose that I am, honestly, from casual acquaintances to very old friends. I was actually just again accused of such by a Silicon Valley venture capitalist last week. I think in some respects, it's just the easiest explanation for the life that I've led. I I guess there aren't a whole lot of people in the brand and marketing industry who've been in as many explosive situations, and I mean that literally, or received quite as many death threats as I have. So I think my being a CIA agent probably seems more rational to most people than the other possible motivations for my decisions, which appeal to many as unusual, if not downright inexplicable, like (laughs) going from luxury brand advertising in New York City to marketing public health products and services to the most vulnerable populations in Central Africa, or from going, you know, from an executive strategic and creative role at Coca-Cola to a master's degree in investigative journalism, uh, where I wrote a thesis on the highly secret of Central Bank for Central Banks, the the Bank for International Settlements and its role in the 2008 financial collapse, or taking time out to write a book, part fiction, part journalistic, for which I received death threats. These decisions probably seem downright bizarre to most. So being a CIA agent is, uh, I think, the easiest explanation. (laughs) Well, let's let's get into it, because let's talk about your career path, because it is different. Where did you start? And you got to kind of highlight some pivotal twists and turns for us, because for those that are listening, you you have traveled uh, all over the world and lived in really fascinating places. And like you said, you've had a lot of twists and turns. So let's let's highlight some of them. Where'd you start? All right. So I graduated from university at a really young age. I was 19. I'd I'd skipped a couple of grades. I'd had the benefit of an education in, in England earlier in my life. And so at age 19, um, finished, finished my bachelor's degree in business administration with a focus in marketing, and I moved to New York City and um, started my career really in advertising and mainly focused on luxury and premium brands. Um, so I started at a, an agency called Bozell Worldwide at the time and then moved to DDB, which was an incredibly formative experience for me. I learned so much. I progressed so quickly. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, professional experience. But at the age of 24, I opened up my closet one day and I realized I had pants suits, otherwise known as trouser suits in, in other countries, <laughs> really from one side to the other. And it's not the pants suits itself that struck me as much as what that represented. It represented sort of the, the predictable, traditional path. And I thought that is not the life I'd intended on, on leading. So I decided that morning I was going to quit my job, and I did so that very day. And, and I went backpacking by myself through Ecuador and East Africa, India, and, and Southeast Asia. And despite having traveled a lot as a child, it really was the first time I'd been confronted with abject poverty mm. in these parts of the world, essentially opening my eyes to how most of the world lives. And it was in this period that I decided I wanted to marry the commercial marketing experience I'd garnered with doing something that would yield a positive cultural impact. And this was really the start of an agonizing quest for me, that of doing good business and doing good. 
agonizing in part because while I had a hunch, I simply wasn't sure one could do both. I think I too at the time was suckered by this sort of zero-sum game mentality that so pervades our society, particularly on this subject. And I too was made to believe that you could do one or the other, but not both, that they're, that they're mutually exclusive. So you really see in my earlier career path, this pendulum swing between doing one, one business and the other, good. Mm. And I returned after this, uh, this backpacking trip and, and briefly joined an ad agency called Weistagliano, mm. um, albeit on certainly more culturally positive brands like The Economist and, mm. and, and National Geographic. Um, and there I met Adam Stagliano, who who was probably also one of my first professional mentors, uh, sort of an eccentric and cerebral guy, educated in the classics, but abreast of contemporary culture. I think I saw much of myself in him, um, kind of what I like to think of as a healthy mix of class and crass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And during this time, while traveling down to to, um, Washington, D.C., frequently on the Nat Geo business, I encountered... um, Population Services International, PSI, a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that leverages commercial sector marketing principles, but for public health. So essentially marketing branded, but highly subsidized products and services targeted at the most uh, vulnerable populations. And they at the time were chomping at the bit for people with private sector experience. So it was really a match made in heaven for both of of us. Mm -hmm. Now, in my first year, I was marketing director in Rwanda. Uh, and, and there I'll say also, I gained my first female mentor, which was really important to me. Yeah. Um, and that was the country director at the time. And on this occasion, I think one of the reasons I really enjoyed her mentorship was more for how different we were <laughs> than our similarities, but my extreme admiration also for this, uh, for the accomplishments of this woman who was from a background that didn't innately set her up for that levels of success. Um, and, and true fundamental admiration for her fearlessness of stepping beyond a zone even tangentially associated with comfort. She'd grown up in the hills of Carolina, but had this incredible uh, career around the world. And then in year two, I became the country director in Rwanda, and I helped lead the office also in Burundi. Um, And while we had condoms upon my arrival, actually, in in Rwanda, during my time there, I launched mosquito nets and insecticide retreatment really targeted at pregnant women and children under five um, to mitigate uh, malaria. Water disinfectant, really uh, targeting children under five um, for diarrheal disease, and also launched a youth center where we were doing HIV AIDS testing and counseling, but also in a post-genocide Rwanda, Mm. trauma testing and counseling, and increasing uh, women's skills, young women's skills, so that they had more confidence with which they could negotiate uh, condom use. Mm. And... uh, you know, I, 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 again, an incredible experience. I learned so much, but it should be noted that these were really highly sensitive times in both countries' history. In Rwanda, um, it was post-genocide. It was in the run-up to the first presidential elections, and I was under extreme surveillance, which was incredibly nerve-wracking. And in Burundi, I was on the wrong side of mortar attacks one too many times. Oh. Um, so while I did adore the experience and, and gained so much from it, I also experienced pretty severe PTSD. Mm. So upon completion of my contract, I decided to move to Paris, um, where I wrote a book uh, that I called Relief, which was part fictional in nature and part journalistic in nature. I never did attempt to publish it because I received repeated and increasingly menacing death threats about the book and the government officials uh, whom I was naming Mm. overtly in the book. 
So I thought, you know, I think I'll go back into marketing. (laughs) Seems safer. (laughs) (laughs) Safer, indeed. So I moved back to London at that time to reboot um, the European division of a U.S.-based brand consultancy. And then in 2006, I joined Coca-Cola as global creative director in corporate social responsibility and the health and wellness portfolio. And I really saw this as an opportunity to use the might and money of this corporate behemoth to do good in the world. And there I met Jonathan Mildenhall, um, who has really been a mentor, a coach, a boss, and friend ever since. And in fact, he is the CEO and one of my uh, two co-founders here at 21st Century Brand. And Jonathan really taught me the value of being your authentic self in the workplace. I have to be honest, when he landed at Coca-Cola, which was just a few months after I did, I remember thinking, this man is wildly competent. This man is wildly magnetic, but he's also wildly authentic. Will he last? (laughs) Um, And it was just shocking to see that not only could he survive in a system like Coca-Cola, he could really thrive in it. And he also was really the first person who showed me, uh, who demonstrated a real drive for marketing that matters culturally. And in so doing, during the period in which he was with the company, he helped drive one of the greatest gains in stock price Coca-Cola has ever seen. So I started to get the inkling that doing cultural good and doing commercial good are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) Now, ultimately, I left that position to move back to London and scratch a real itch that I'd had, that of obtaining a master's degree in investigative journalism, (laughs) as you do in the middle of your career in branding and marketing. Um, uh, Also, during this time, I met my current husband, I should say my only husband and my current (laughs) husband. And halfway through my master's degree, uh, we got pregnant with our first child. Now, I'd mentioned my thesis um, previously. Uh, Again, it was written on a very secretive central bank to central banks um, and their role in the financial crisis. And the night before it was due, at six months pregnant, our home was broken Mm -hmm. into. And they came through a back window and they went over a video camera, went right past a brand new iPhone left a brand new MacBook Pro in the box. And the only thing that was stolen was the laptop on which I'd done my thesis and all of the paper, all of the paper papers related to it, all of my research related to it. Now, luckily, I still had a soft copy. I'd actually just sent it to my mom to proofread. So I still had an electronic version and I was able to hand it in the next day. But it was another moment in which I thought, maybe not just now, maybe I'll go back into marketing. (laughs) So once again, I did. And in fact, I even rejoined Coke. Um, This time in Europe, though, and working across the entire brand portfolio. Mm. Um, And honestly, after a few more years and after my second child was born, I I struggled. I was really struggling to align my moral compass with that of of the growth trajectory of the organization. So I took a big risk, um, a really big risk, because at the time I was the single income earner for my family of four Mm. in London. So I resigned from that job and I just hoped and prayed that the universe would throw out a safety net. And it did. And in fact, rather than give me a net, it sent me the most beautiful air balloon in the form of Airbnb. Contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in um, applying for their head of marketing uh, in EMEA role. I underwent a six-month interview process, during which, incidentally, I awoke one day to read that Jonathan Mildenhall had left the Coca-Cola company to become CMO at Airbnb. So unbelievable, though it may sound, we coincidentally and completely independently of one another landed at Airbnb at the same time. That's amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, ultimately my recruitment process was, was also successful. So I started in EMEA in the summer of 2014 when Airbnb was a very, very unknown brand. In fact, I lots of questions from neighbors and friends and family saying, are you going to leave this company with, you know, the, the, the most recognized word <laughs> in the world next to OK and go, uh, you know, work at this company I've never heard of? And I said, well, yes, but my job is to ensure that you do hear about it. So come back and talk to me in a few years if you haven't. But, you know, during my time there, we experienced unbelievable, phenomenal growth. And, and my experience was, was life changing on so many levels. I mean, principally, it represented the first real robust proof that purpose-driven, values-based brands can do good and do good, good business. And that not only are they not mutually exclusive, they can actually be mutually reinforcing. Two years into EMEA, uh, and then I, I moved to the Bay Area to take on the global marketing uh, role and was with the company for uh, almost another two years. And it was really thanks to this four-year-long masterclass from which I, Jonathan, and Neil Berry, our third co-founder, who was chief strategy officer at um, Airbnb's agency of record, TBWA, Shia Day at the time, it was because of this that we really decided we wanted to apply this conviction and know-how to a broader swath of organizations so we could be a part of contributing to an increase in the positive social impact brands are having. I love it. I want to come back, obviously, to 21st century brands, and we'll, we'll get that story as well. But let's start first. You've lived like three lives already, like, <laughs> and you still got a lot of, a lot of life to go. Um, so it was an amazing journey, and I can definitely understand why everyone thinks you're a CIA agent. It's not every every day you meet somebody that you've you've been a near mortar attacks, had your house raided or tossed, so to speak, yeah. to find the, what they were looking for. Um, so anyway, but first of all, you you said you graduated university at nineteen. What was that's. I mean, that's early. You said that, but it's what it, what did that do to you? It, like, how did that shape you? I guess. Honestly, I think it was a double-edged sword um, in hindsight. So I, I had the worst kind of imposter syndrome. And I think this is pervasive, I think for women at large and probably all of us human beings to some extent. Right. But but I think I had the worst kind of imposter syndrome because I was an imposter, even in the simple <laughs> things like taking my clients out for drinks before I was of legal drinking age. I would just I would take them out and panic that I was going to get carded and have to fess up to not even being 21 years old. Um, but I think also at the same time, it forced me to become aware of, of just how much everyone really at any age is just doing the best that they can mm. and frankly, making it up as they go along. And that was a precious gift of a lesson to learn at such a young age. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I started, a, I did not graduate early. So <laughs> for listeners, I'm not as smart as Alex, but, but I did start a company um, when I was well before I was 21. And, and I think it was I was I was already 18 so I think it was probably in 1920 but found myself selling to a couple of establishments that I couldn't have legally gone into otherwise um <laughs> and, and realizing the owner realizing that probably halfway through my pitch are you old enough to be in here? And then we had to circle back to his office pretty quickly after that. So <laughs> I, I, I've been an imposter myself at, at some level, at some level, but I, it's interesting to hear how you put it and, and, and the real work experience that you had after the fact of, of similar in, in many regards about your age. Yeah. Well, 
you've had you've you've definitely had twists and turns, probably more so than any guest before that I've had on. But you know, in our last conversation we had, and I'm you know, I sense it again as you you go back over your your time and and places you've been and experiences you've had, you really take there's a lot of strength coming through these experiences and, and strength that you've gained, it seems like from, you know, global exposure to your journalist, journalistic roots or, or wanting to be a journalist um, in some fashion, yeah. fashion factor or fashion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, the advertising, the content that you've been able to build and the brands that you've built. Do you agree? Do you, do you take strength from all of those varied backgrounds and varied experiences? Absolutely. And yeah, I have had, I have had quite a lattice career, which I have to say is a term and concept that I love. I have to confess that I used to tell everyone that I had a promiscuous professional (laughs) path, (laughs) but then I was taught this, then I was taught this term of lattice versus ladder career. And I've stuck with that more flattering terminology ever since. So, uh, so let's go with lattice career. Yeah. I mean, so listen, I've, I've always really been driven by this, uh, this idea of knowing enough to know that I know nothing. To gain insight into a vast number of topics and categories and industries, to be able to compare and contrast and apply lessons and approaches from one area to a seemingly unrelated other area. In fact, I believe that's when most innovation truly occurs in this sort of mashup of insight and understanding across subject areas. The other thing is that I just simply don't understand how anyone can be a lateral thinker, which we value so much in the commercial and creative industries if they've had no lateral life experience. So for me, it was fundamental to gain that lateral life experience in order to have the ability to think laterally. Um, But also, and this I think really gets to the heart of your question, Alan, I'm driven by personal growth. And I tend to think that this happens when you play at your limits. It's kind of like how we need to stretch to improve our flexibility. You know, you have to go to the limits of your flexibility to push beyond into new territory. And and so I do think we have to test our limits and know our limits to then work to push past our limits. Um, And then I'd say, lastly, I recognize that gaining competitive advantage means standing out from the crowd. You know, when interviewees are seeing hundreds, sometimes thousands of candidates, one has to be different from the rest in order to be differentiated. And I swear I've landed some of my greatest gigs simply because I was more memorable, you know, when other candidates had a really typical career progression saying, say, climbing the, you know, brand management ladder, I was probably, quote, that woman who sold condoms in Rwanda, unquote. So um, so there, there's so much value that I've garnered and that I think I apply to my life and my profession thanks to, thanks to the, this lattice career that I've, that I've been fortunate enough to experience. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I wish more HR departments, frankly, would accept candidates that have those varied experiences as they go through the pipeline. <laughs> I think I think we would have much better companies and much better management teams, frankly. So I agree. Well, you know, for anybody, I, I haven't told you this, Alex, but since our last conversation, I was doing some research and, um, um, you know, we talked about your experience at PSI and for listeners, that if they're interested, I actually just reconnected with the, one of the founders of PSI. Phil Harvey. And so in the next coming, coming weeks, uh, from this interview, I'll have Phil on and, um, he is quite the, uh, quite the, uh, <laughs> the person. And so, so yeah. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, and, and has set to your point how marketing can be used for good 
to solve real world problems um, in, the, in the lives of others that you've had an uh, experience helping to do in Rwanda and Burundi. So I wanted to go a little deeper. So we'll have Phil on um, at some point soon. Oh, that, that'll be a fascinating, that'll be a fascinating chat. I can't wait to see it. I know. In. And then 81, I, I feel like I may have to expand the, uh, the time we have to, to go through all the stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's also inspiring. Yeah. It, 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 it truly underscores that I have many more lives. Yes. I, I, I can we yet. Bo- yeah, we both, we both have a lot more years. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, so let's, let's transition to Airbnb. And then I do want to come back to 20, 21st century brands, but you talked about joining Airbnb almost simultaneously as, um, as, as Jonathan and you were in London. What did you learn while you were there? Uh, cause it, it was a, an interesting time for the company, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two, again, two years in London, uh, just, just under two years then in the Bay area. So in addition to what I'd mentioned before, again, that really being a, a masterclass in the mutually reinforcing nature of doing business and doing good. I also really learned the value of community at Airbnb and harnessing the power of the community, firstly through a value exchange rather than, as many brands see it, value extraction. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to put into the community to drive brand love and create loyalists beyond reason? But secondly, how do we activate that community to essentially create the world's largest and most authentic marketing department? I also really learned the importance of an incredibly tight brand narrative centered around purpose. First, so the world understands why it needs the brand, but also what it can hold the brand accountable for. And so that when that narrative goes out into the world and is molded, rightly so, by the community, it's still recognizable. It still maintains the integrity of the intended story. And lastly, I mean, this list could go on, but in the, in the interest of brevity for this conversation, I also really learned the importance of values. I learned how values shape a cohesive culture. I learned how values attract and retain the relevant talent, how they create a shared understanding of the expected behaviors that provide guardrails, eliminating time, energy, and frustration of trying to guess how to fit in, but not straitjackets, ultimately enabling people to be themselves, but in a really harmonious context. That's awesome. That's awesome. The great learnings. And could you share some examples of some of the work you did while you were at Airbnb? I know there's a mm. lot. So Absolutely. Yeah, there is. So again, in the interest of brevity, I'll, I'll mention um, a, a yeah. couple of examples. I think one, one campaign that I'm most proud of, and, and I think more because it was a, it was a brand action as well as expression was um, what we call, we mm. accept. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to 2016. Bear with me. So in 2016, a Harvard Business School study uncovered that across a sample of five U.S. cities, requests from Airbnb guests with distinctively African-American names were 16% less likely to be accepted by hosts relative to identical guests with distinctively white names. We were stunned at Airbnb, as you can imagine. We we just could not understand how a behavior so antithetical to our very purpose, to our very values, could exist within our host community. So the first thing the company did was act, which I do think is fundamental to authentic 21st century brands. Acting first, talking later, seeking credit once actions have produced results, if you seek credit at all. In the case of Airbnb, 
the founders, first thing they did was fessed up to the fact that as three white men, they hadn't really created the platform and its mechanics with racism in mind. And they recognized that if we wanted to create a world in which everyone could belong mm. anywhere, that, that needed to start in our own home first. And again, that for me is the mark of a 21st century brand. It's really the inside out nature of a brand. So managers underwent unconscious bias training. New guidelines were put in place regarding underrepresented minorities in the candidate pool, relationships with more universities, historically serving minority communities were forged. And there was an executive mandate that conveyed the priority of diversity over the speed of recruitment. Um, and the organization also extended this drive for diversity among its um, among its suppliers. We also went and hired uh, the former United States Attorney General mm. Eric Holder to help craft a new anti-discrimination policy and created a bespoke team of engineers and product managers to experiment really with all aspects of the platform from identity elements like name and photograph to the algorithm, all, of course, with the objective of, of fighting bias. And in November of that year, of 2016, we rolled out what we called the Community Commitment, which required every Airbnb user, old and new, to agree to treat everyone in the community with respect and without judgment or bias, regardless of race, religion, uh, origin, ethnicity, disab disability, gender identity, etc., or else be removed from the platform. And this wasn't a stunt. Those who didn't sign were removed. It's rare that a company will take a move like that, where they risk their own supply and their own demand in the interest of the purpose. Um, but that is when you know a purpose truly exists. And in, in, in one of the several inst instances, frankly, we also removed users associated with a white nationalist, nationalist rally later that year. So that's actually when we first created what we call this We Accept film. It lived in product, and it explains to our community the why behind the commitment we were asking them to sign, you know, really by restating our values, those behavioral expectations, and those very values that bind a community together. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. And then in January of 2017, Trump issued the travel ban. And again, our values forced a prompt response. 
So the company committed $4 million to the International Rescue Committee, Committee um, IRC, to support displaced populations and to provide housing to a minimum of 100,000 refugees over the ensuing five years. And in rapid succession, the three founders, Brian, Joe, and Nate, agreed to buy as of yet unsold airtime during the 2017 Super Bowl. And they locked themselves away in an editing suite to revise the film that we'd initially used for the community commitment in November of 2016, and which mainly featured Airbnb employees, <laughs> by the way. And just a few days later, it was winging its way to the world's um, biggest advertising stage, the, the Super Bowl. Now, most importantly, the communications serve to engage our communities, our employees, the hosts and guests, really driving towards participation in the commitments that Airbnb had made. But also, despite our incredibly low level of investment, vis-a-vis -vis the other advertisers on the Super Bowl, we punched well above our weight in terms of impressions, engagements, and sentiment. So that's, we accept is one that I'm enormously proud of on, on so many levels. Um, the action that the company took first, the expression that the company created, the participation the company garnered uh, across the communities. Um, Night At was another really, really fun campaign. It was really an experiential franchise in which we would place um, people, we would enable people to belong in previously inaccessible or exclusive spaces and places. So uh, they'd have a night in a cable car hanging <laughs> tens of thousands of feet over the Alps or in the deepest, darkest corners of the catacombs or a charming home floating down the River Thames or in the Lego Museum and many, many more. Um, and then another franchise, although this time one that was distributed across our social channels that I'm very, very proud of was um, Not Yet Trending. So this was a, a franchise that we created whereby we would use our internal data to really uncover destinations that were on the rise. So where we were seeing an increase in, in host sign up or an increase in, in guest bookings. And, and we'd go there and we'd talk to our hosts, you know, the real local experts to understand what, what was driving it from the, muse from the music and the art scene to the culinary scene to the nature scenes and beyond. So those are three examples of some work I'm, I'm really, really proud of during my time at Airbnb. That's, that's awesome. Uh, great examples, too. I mean, I, I love the backstory of We Accept and all the actions, to your yeah. point, you know, living or acting before you talk that went into that, right? Uh, that may, may you know, if you just saw the film, uh, you may not have uh, recognized that the company had done so much. So I love it. I love that story. Um, well, let's, let's switch gears. Let's talk about 21st century brands. Obviously, you know, you and Jonathan had known each other at Coke, somehow made your ways <laughs> independently to Airbnb. When, when, how, how did 21st century brands come about, I guess? Um, well, you know, I think as I, as I mentioned before, it was really a masterclass for, for all three of us, Neil, Jonathan, and myself in, in, um, in the ability to do good and do good business. And, and we wanted to take those learnings and apply them, um, to, to more organizations to, to increase brands ability to, to have both commercial growth um, but also growth in the positive cultural legacy that they're creating. And, and we think it's really timely. You know, last year, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was toxic. And it's unsurprising to some extent, because we heard a lot about toxic masculinity. We heard a lot about toxic corporate cultures. And we heard a lot about toxic growth, growth at all costs, growth at the expense of people and our planet. And in some instances, even company profit. 
We founded 21st Century Brand because we truly believe we must enter and are entering into a new era, one of purposeful growth, where commercial value is really becoming inseparable from human values and soft measures are increasingly considered business critical. And it's really interesting to, to look at the evolution in our environment. So for example, investors are now holding companies to a much higher societal standard than they ever did previously. Measures related to purpose are actually now front and center of investment decisions. So you know where the focus historically was on margin and profitability story and a clear and compelling growth strategy, increasingly they're looking at corporate culture and conduct and role in addressing societal issues and equal focus on environment and social and, and governance issues. And frankly, as our trust in institutions and social infrastructure has eroded, consumers too are looking for brands to take the lead. I mean, 64% of consumers are, are looking to CEOs to take a lead on policy change instead of waiting for government to impose it, which is just an incredible turn of events uh, that, that, that's occurred over the past decade. So, so at 21st Century Brand, we're really working with founders and CEOs of the world's most innovative companies to realize transformational growth through excellence in brand and marketing, thereby building the most influential brands of our time. But, but we're talking about growth, like I said, not just in commercial success, but also in cultural legacy. We're not talking about vacuous fame. We're talking about increasing a brand's scale and scope of influence to positively impact the category the communities the brand serves and in which it operates, and, and ultimately culture at large. Now, as you can imagine, given our name, we have a very definitive view on what comprises a 21st century brand. We believe that influential 21st century brands are purpose-led, so they're really ensuring their scale is ultimately to the benefit of the communities they serve. They're community-driven, with aligned incentives across the many communities, customers, employees, investors, shareholders, policymakers. They're tech-enabled by a world-class data-driven product that scales globally, but also connects beyond the transactional, connects emotionally with people. And we believe they're narrative-based. They have one single overarching narrative that really unifies all stakeholders, um, across all touch points. We are, we are working with the world's most ambitious leaders, but those who aspire for their brand to play a positive cultural role and are committed to a legacy that serves humanity for good. So that's our criteria in the clients that come knocking on our door. Do we really believe, do, have they demonstrated their intent for their brand to play a positive cu cultural role in addition to enjoying transformative cultural growth? So uh, Pinterest actually was one of our first clients, and we really helped them to articulate who they are, what they stand for pre-IPO, and we continue to work with them to embed that strategy across, across the business and the platform. Worked with Uber, Masterbrand, Rides, Uber Eats, um, WeWork, Intuit's, TurboTax, Sean Parker's Airtime, Peloton, a fantastic uh uh, tech uh, fintech brand um, out of Europe that actually just re recently launched in, in the US um, N26, Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global, to name just a few. And generally what we're doing is helping these founders, these CEOs, the C-suite address 
certain questions. And the ones we tend to be working against are that they're, you know, they've been a category of one, they're becoming a category of copycats, or that their differentiation was initially driven really by tech IP, but that's becoming the most replicable thing. And therefore, differentiation will in the future be driven more by brand IP, or they're wrestling with that notion that community-driven brands simply don't control all their touch points. So they recognize that they need a, a tighter, more compelling narrative or their core business needs to cross the chasm into the mainstream. It's been more for a niche audience uh, to date, or their future growth is predicated on expanding into new verticals. So it's really critical for them to understand who they are and who they want to be, really their reason for being, so that they are selecting new verticals and lines of business that that support that, become, that become reasons to believe in that purpose and another way that they can express and enact that purpose. Or we're scaling the CEO or the founder vision into a growing employee base. You know, it's one thing when you can all sit around a table and information is passed almost by osmosis. It's a, it's a different thing when you become a larger organization and you really need to codify your brand and your archetype and embed that um, throughout the company. So these are the challenges that we're, we're mainly helping our clients, um, our clients work through. And we're doing so through principally five verticals today. So... Um, our, our most often uh, engaged product is what we call our brand blueprint, which articulates what a brand aspires to stand for in the hearts and minds of its communities. And, and that results in a brand narrative that unites the vast and varied stakeholder communities, as I mentioned before, from consumers to employees to partners to investors and beyond. And acts really is the foundational reference that helps the workforce make better, faster decisions that deliver on brand consistently. And then uh, our next vertical we call strategy embed. So, you know, as you'll know, a brand is not simply advertising. It is quite simply, as I put it, the interface between the living, breathing business idea and its communities, or as I like to say, humans, all humans <laughs> inside <laughs> and outside of the company. <laughs> um, so that's really why we work with our clients to embed the brand strategy as broadly across the business um, as possible for, for maximum impact. Um, so that could be brand criteria, that could be a social impact framework, that could be our community activation, that could be leadership speeches, you know, an IPO roadshow, employee value propositions, advertiser value propositions, really baking the strategy into the protocols, processes, products to ensure that that brand is, is lived, is enacted consistently throughout the organization. Um, we have a go-to-market vertical, which is really about developing the marketing strategy and the content for generally sort of a six to 12 month roadmap uh, against products and cultural milestones, which is the actionable, measurable plan to propel the brand to 21st century relevance. And we're also doing some outsourcing and agency management work. So working with our clients to help them figure out their insourcing versus their outsourcing strategy and, and where they are outsourcing, helping them develop a more focused portfolio of the best partners delivering the best work at the best price. Um, and we do marketing org design work um, where we're doing capability assessments to identify the opportunities for improved integration and collaboration and helping them figure out the architecture for a 21st century marketing team um, optimized for products, um, for, for productivity. Wow. You're really remaking in, in some in some fashions. It's a, I guess in some of these, they're making it for the first time. That's, it's not a remake, but you're working across the entire marketing value chain. Really? For the most part. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I know last time we talked, you, 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 I know you're very 
purpose focused and you're looking for partners, i.e. clients that share um, the desire to be purpose, I guess, purpose focused. And you talked about values that even 21st century brands has. And so I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing what your values are as a, as an organization and a group of people, <laughs> a group of humans, as you put it. <laughs> so Absolutely. I'd love to know what your ears are. Yeah. Well, I mean, so values is something I am very passionate about. And as I said, something I learned so much about um, at Airbnb. And in fact, uh, earlier this year, um, I had I wrote a chapter that was published in a book called Perspectives on Purpose, um, published by Rutledge, on values and really how values put purpose into action. So here at 21st Century Brand, we took, a, we, I think, quite a unique approach to our values um, because we wanted... We wanted an articulation of our values that kind of mirrors great brand building. In our opinion, just as the most formidable brands are built on tensions, the tension between commercial growth and positive cultural impact, the tension between efficiency and humanity, and, and the very social tensions a brand can resolve, so should, we felt, our values be imbued with tension. So we have four values, all of which are chock full of tension. <laughs> Um, and the first is ambush with humanity. And, you know, you don't, yeah, humanity is a word we are familiar with. Ambush is not a verb you would generally see with humanity. Um, but for us, it's, um, it's an important one. We really go proactively, almost aggressively out of our way to create a safe space for people to be vulnerable and creative and challenging and to be challenged, to be themselves and not who they think they should be. Again, a really valuable lesson I learned from Jonathan Mildenhall when I first met him. And one that I've been reminded of throughout my career, when I am in places where my values are, are innately matched with those of the organization, it removes so much friction. It removes so much focus from trying to be something that you're not. And you can put all of that energy and all of that brilliance into doing great work. Um, diversity and harmony is another one that's really critical for us. So First of all, we really take a very broad view on diversity. It's, you know, it's on everyone's lips today, um, but we fear that it's becoming um, almost limited in its definition. So yes, it includes race and creed um, and sexual orientation, but it's also socioeconomic class, experience, perspectives. You know, we are in a bastion of of, of, of liberal thinking here, particularly in the Bay Area, but it's, it's important that we're also speaking with and working with people who have more sort of traditionally conservative views, socially, economically, et cetera. But what's really important with diversity is building the harmony, blending those diverse opinions together harmoniously, which can be really messy, but the results are powerful and more than worth it. Look, we can all stand in our own corners, which is kind of what I feel is happening in society today and shout, shout our, our diverse opinions at each other louder, you know, and more aggressively. But, but that's not where the value is obtained. The value is really generated, again, when you blend those together in a harmonious fashion and enjoy that combustible creativity that comes with it. Um, speaking of creativity, commercial creativity is our third, um, is a, is our third value. And, and this one is an interesting one because, you know, we have all seen both sides of this. You know, we've seen the kind of traditional consultancies that have incredible commercial acumen but bring very little creativity or innovation. We've also all worked probably at um, and certainly with agencies that bring remarkable creativity, but not necessarily also uh, always to, to commercial ends. 
Um, right. We really see, again, in, in this respect, the two as being mutually reinforcing. And we see creativity as a mindset, not a discipline. You don't na- need creativity in your title to be a creative individual. For us, the art is really in using it to create real value with the entire company as our creative canvas. And then um, fourth, but certainly not least, is purposeful growth. You know, commerce has been predicated on growth, but not all that grows is good. So we pursue for ourselves, for our employees, and also for our clients, growth that is sustainable for people, the planet, and profit. I love it. I love it. And I, I really like the tension, to your point earlier, in, in each of those. And the fact that many, most of them are only two words. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Short, sweet, and then an, and an, uh, f- with four, easily memorized. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's like eight, eight words uh, yeah. when it's all done. That's fantastic. I, it's, it's so hard to um, not only to craft values that everyone agrees to and, and, and adhere to them, but it's also just so hard to articulate them. So congrats on both fronts. Yeah. Well, you know, we started off talking about you as an individual, and that's one of the things I love um, about my podcast format and, and getting to know each person. I would love to ask you the question I ask everyone, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past? And I realize you've got a lot (laughs) that defines um, or makes up who you are today. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, there there are so many experiences I could point to who have really, that have really forged the person I've become. But I think the one, the one that I would highlight is, is moving around um, so, you know, I was, I was born in the States, then I lived in England until the age of nine. I came back to the States, but we traveled frequently over to Europe. I went to high school in Italy. Um, and then as an adult, I mean, you've, you've heard some of it already. England several times, Atlanta, Central Africa, France. Um, and, and moving around gave me incredible global perspective which I think is is really critical. I mean, a, a great example is when I was at Airbnb, we were having conversations about, you know, what what was sort of the basic level of service that was expected. And I was speaking with someone who whose experience was was mainly in the United States. And they were talking about the, you know, the the fundamental need to ensure that there were two pillows per person. And I thought, no, that's that's very American. In most of the world, they don't <laughs> sleep on pillows at all. And where they do, it's generally one. So a very trite example, but it has given me that global perspective to sort of question what people think is a de facto truth otherwise. And also the ability to productively, positively engage with people of any walk of life. I think I, I have a great ease um, with folks from anywhere um, who think just about anything um, because of the the flexibility that that my moving around kind of forced, and also a deep appreciation for and empathy with outsiders, like the people on the margins. Because frankly, I have always been an outsider myself. I have rarely been called by my name. In England, as a child, I kid you not, my teachers called me Yankee. They did not call me Alex. <laughs> I did not realize at the time <laughs> um, that, that that was really quite a dig. Right. <laughs> I just sort of accepted Yankee as my name. Um, but then, you know, in the States, I was the English girl. In Italy, I was Americana. In Rwanda, I was Mzungu. So, you know, a, a, as someone who is ex- who has experienced most of my life as an outsider, it gives me great empathy for those who have been marginalized um, by uh, by mainstream society. Got it. What advice would you give your younger self if, if that 19 year old, if, again, if you, if you had the opportunity? Hmm. 
So I think firstly, I would tell myself at the age of 19 that we are human beings and not human doings. And I would recommend that I invest my time, mind space and love accordingly. Hmm. I think, you know, if we are good, then we do good. And starting with doing is like the tail wagging the dog. Um, but we live in a real doing society where your value is is um, is almost um, interpreted via how much you do. You know, the this this busy economy, right? I'm so busy. I'm so important. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. We're doing, doing, doing all the time. But again, we are human beings and not human doings. And it's not until recently that I allowed my being to take priority over my doing. And I've really experienced the benefits. And then the other thing I think I would tell myself is think first about the life you want to have and then create the career opportunities that enable that way of living. I think that that's one way we maintain intentional authorship over our own lives. And I got there eventually. You know, I had that wake-up call at the age of 24. But um, I think it's certainly something that my 19-year-old self would benefit from hearing. That's great advice. Great advice. And I love the phrase, human beings, not human doings. Um, that's fantastic. That should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what fuels you? What keeps you going these days? People. Honestly, people drive me. I'm, I'm just endless, I'm endlessly fascinated by us human beings. What moves us, what scares us, our similarities, our differences, and how these shape our behaviors. And frankly, that's really why I got into marketing in the first place. It was more for a love of people. And then I realized the power that brands can have in our lives and in the world, because as I often say, for better or for worse, people know more about brand platforms than political party or candidates platforms. And with that great power comes great responsibility. So I'm moved by people. I'm also moved by my deep sense of obligation to harness brands power for good, for the good of people, the people running a company, people working at a company, the people investing in a company, but also those people in the communities um, in which the business operates and the communities it serves. Got it. And most marketers are students of other brands and other things that are going on. I know you work with a lot. Are there brands or companies that you follow or you think um, other people should take notice of? Honestly, all the brands that are fundamentally questioning the legitimacy of this notion of average, because no one is average, and really even challenging uh, traditional or conventional images of aspiration. So, you know, Dove, I think, kicked this off in a very loud way with the Real Beauty campaign. But I'm heartened by the growth of brands like Universal Standard, mm. which started out in plus-size clothes, but now really wants to bring down the barriers between plus and straight-size clothing. And I've cheered Third Love on uh, from the side mm. in their public debate with Victoria's Secret. Um, I love brands that are using data to gain deep insight into humans and then leverage that insight in a deeply human way. I think Spotify is such a great example of this, particularly with their um, data-driven out-of-home campaign. Um, and I'm thrilled to see the rise of fashion brands that have sustainability woven into their very fabric. And that pathetic pun was actually intended. <laughs> Like uh, like Everlane, mm. and then you know from an organization's point of view, I I've always got my eyes on and engage with Lean In and others like the Three Percent Conference, who are boldly tackling outright and unconscious gender bias and and forcing us to all reevaluate our own perceptions and misperceptions and be, and behaviors. And I love the brands that are doing the same. I mean, it's an oldie at this point, but a go goodie always like a girl. Mm -hmm was great, you know, and forced us to reevaluate what we mean when we say like a girl. And, you know, my gosh, I had used that phrase myself. Right, <laughs> right. Really had to stop and reevaluate myself and my own unconscious bias towards my very own gender. 
Um, and then for me, the organizations who continue fighting the battles that that we that we often think are already won. So like um, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, for me is a critical one. They continue to fight for the true freedom of expression. And that's a tricky subject right now because you know, we talk about freedom of expression, but oftentimes what we really mean is we want those whose expressions are similar to our own to have the freedom, right. <laughs> but but not those who have opinions that differ. So it's a it's a tough subject. You know, I think it's one that we could have assumed was like job done years ago, but they continue to fight. They continue to fight for it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's important. You have to hear all views, not just the ones that agree with yours. Well, last question for you: Where do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? Um, a couple of things I'd say here. I think you know, I think we'll stop talking about business to business marketing or business to consumer marketing, and I think we'll increasingly talk about brand to communities. So it'll be a B to C. It'll just be that the B will be about brand and the C will be communities. Um, I believe our view on communities is going to continue to expand. So where people talk so often about their consumer targets, I think increasingly they will understand that communities include employees and policymakers and government officials and civil society and investors and shareholders and more. And rather than create these separate narratives for each of this group, these groups, which in this age of transparency can appeal as disingenuous at best, but dishonest at worst. Right we'll be increasingly forced to build that one single brand narrative that's delivered when, where, and how it's best received by these communities, but it will be singular in, in its nature. And uh, the other thing that I think is going to happen is, you know, where the marketing development process used to be shorter than the product development timeline, particularly among more legacy brands with analog products, um, you know, we've now seen product cycles shorten considerably, particularly among digitally native brands, and marketing is going to continue to be forced to move faster, mirroring sprint cycles, you know, live beta and A-B testing and rapid scaling based on in vivo versus in vitro results. I love it. Yeah, those are this great insight into the future. And I, I love the brands to communities and the, the the solution to your point is the one single brand narrative. Um, that you live by. So, well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Alan, thank you. It has been a tremendous pleasure. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.